As Bucky Fuller said, universe consists of non-simultaneously apprehended events. Non-simultaneously. Any belief system or reality tunnel you've got right now is going to have to be revised and updated as you continue to apprehend new events later in time, not simultaneously. But once you have a belief system, everything that comes in either gets ignored if it doesn't fit the belief system or it gets distorted enough so that it can fit into the belief system. You've got to be continually revising your map of the world. Welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of iconic underground writer Robert Anton Wilson and the people and ideas who influenced him. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. On our last episode, Graham Talley took time to chat with us about John Lilly, and today, we chat with inventor, writer, producer, and educator Kurt Prisbilla about architect, systems theorist, author, designer, inventor, and futurist R. Buckminster Fuller. As we continue to follow Bob's journey through Chapel Perilous, as outlined in his book Cosmic Trigger, we find that he frequently notes that the finest minds among us have had non-ordinary experiences similar to his experience with the Dog Star Sirius. Among those fine minds was Bucky Fuller, who may or may not have had contact with angels who persuaded him not to commit suicide one dark night. Bucky notes that he felt as though he was suspended several feet above the ground enclosed in a sphere of white light. A voice spoke directly to Fuller and declared, From now on, you need never await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. Your significance will remain forever obscure to you, but you may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experiences to the highest advantage of others. In Cosmic Trigger, Bob also relates Bucky's ideas in geometry to the octave orientation of the eight circuit model and Bucky's overall philosophy to the upper four circuits of that same eight-circuit model. In brief, one might say that the spirit of the man, Bucky Fuller, had a huge influence on Bob as he rebuilt his persona along his journey through the chapel. And with all that said, I'm excited to introduce our guest for this episode, inventor and educator, Kurt Prisbilla. All right. Kurt Prisbilla, welcome to the Laritas Podcast. Thank you. Where are you dialing in from? I'm dialing in from Troy, New York, which is right up the Hudson River from Manhattan, about 160 miles just north of Albany on the other side of the river. It was the heart of the American Industrial Revolution, and it's where the Erie Canal begins, basically, on the other side of the river. And so it's a very interesting place. It's uh, also the home of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, which is soon to celebrate its 200th anniversary. 
And that's the reason that I'm here in Troy. Uh, are you a professor at RPI? Or? Actually, no. I came in as a writer-producer on a, an animation project to teach kids about atoms and molecules called the Molecularium. Ah, excellent. So sort of affiliated with the school, but not... not yes, it's actually uh, an NSF-funded project that started up with the Nanotechnology Center there. The idea is to teach kids from a very young age that everything's made of atoms and molecules. Oh, neat. Fantastic. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Buckminster Fuller and, and maybe any current projects you're involved in inspired by Bucky. Well, the Molecularium Project in many ways was very inspired by Bucky, but um, my earliest uh, encounters with him, or at least his work, were um, when I was a small child. I I was born and raised in Minnesota, and actually born right on the North Shore of Lake Superior. And we lived in a small town. My father was teaching there, and uh, we ha every spring I would beg my father to set up a geodesic dome playset that we had in the backyard when the snow would melt. It was my favorite place to play, and I would beg him to set up the dome. All of us like to play on it. I, I have three sisters, but it was particularly some place that I spent a lot of time. Didn't know Buckminster Fuller, his name at that time. Um, this was this was in the late '60s. I was a small child, and uh, though I, his name, my parents occasionally, um, I, I we came to learn the name just because my parents would say it occasionally and they usually would laugh about it. But then we also in 1970 took a trip to Montreal and went to the Expo 67 dome. And that had a huge impact on me. Um, I remember it quite well. Uh, we called it the big golf ball, but that was, I was six at that time and I was already playing on the dome. So I, I made some connection, but Really, I didn't get into his life and works until much, much later. I didn't run into him in my formal education at all um, or any of his ideas, basically. Um, but in the early 1990s, I, I well, actually in 1990, I was I had been living in Japan, living and teaching in Japan, and I was sent to open a school in Manhattan for this Japanese language school, which was the second largest after Berlitz in the, on the planet. And, uh, I opened a, a school on 42nd and fifth for them, but I was living in Brooklyn and I became involved with a very interesting group of artists called La La Landia. And we ran a series of underground night spaces that became quite popular where we build immersive technorganic environments is what we called them. But at that time, somebody gave, my friend Ignacio, who was in La La Landia, a book about Bucky, and he gave it to me, and we both devoured it quickly. And there was a lot of about his ideas. It was uh, Hugh Kenner's book, Bucky, A Personal Guided Tour. And I knew Hugh Kenner because he was a literary critic, basically, and I knew him from, I, I was a literature major in college, but he became friends with Bucky, and so he wrote this book. And he got into the geometry there and was talking about the different shapes that Fuller spent 
most of his life exploring. And I was fascinated and immediately started to make models of the shapes that were described because just reading about them didn't do it for me. And I was profoundly affected by the fact that no one had ever taught me any of it, particularly a tetrahedron. Like I didn't even know the name tetrahedron. I, I knew solids because in my 10th grade geometry class, we focused mainly on planar Euclidean geometry, which is not really fair to Euclid because he did have a whole chapter on, on solids and he, he went past that. But in our book, solids were for another another class. We were only in flat planar geometry. So they just had a picture of the five platonic solids and they were like, those are solids and that's it. And we didn't really, we didn't deal with them. We didn't talk about them. We didn't, we really didn't deal with them at all. And that was the only time I ever ran into it in my formal education. Mm. And what really profoundly affected me was how Fuller said, these are the primary structural systems of universe. And that was demonstrable physically with the models, how you could show that they're structurally stable. And the bigger thing was that cubes, the way we're trained to think, and squares are not structurally stable. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually the structures and how we're informed to think about space and structure is not structurally stable and has no structural integrity. And I was shocked that I'd never run into this in my formal education and believed it's something that all kindergartners should be taught because the tetrahedron is the first three-dimensional shape. Right. The, the way that I usually talk people through it in workshops is Euclidean geometry starts with a dimensionless point. And then if you take another dimensionless point, not on top of that one, a different point, and you connect them, what do you get? A line. What kind of line? The shortest line. distance. A straight line. The shortest yeah. distance is a straight line. Because there's other geometries that will yeah. go into like the other things, but flat planar Euclidean, good old Greek geometry. And Greek geometry was borrowing it from the Egyptians and the Sumerians before them that we know of through records. So it's not just Greek, but the names come to us as Greek and they were elaborated on by Plato in the academy. That's why we call them platonic solids, but they were known in China long before that as well. There's, these shapes are everywhere. And the words that are used to describe them are not the shapes themselves, but the concept of them. So you got the, the straight line. If you take a third point off of that line and you connect those three points. Triangle. A triangle, which is the first polygon. And it's the first shape enclosing space. Mm. It, the triangle encloses space, first shape. If you take, and the other thing is, it defines a, a flat plane. Three points define a plane. Because if you have a, a line, you could have an infinite number of planes go through that line. Right. So a third point gives you a flat plane. If you take a fourth point off of that plane and you connect those four points, you get the first three-dimensional shape, which is a tetrahedron. Tetra meaning four, and hedron means faces, because the Greeks thought about them as sides or faces. Um, in, in modern parlance, um, topology deals with it, and they talk about um, the three different parts of 
we're, we're all familiar with polygons. Again, they teach us flat shapes. But when you ask people if they know what a tetrahedron is, you get a small number of people raising their hand saying, yes, I know what a tetrahedron is. For some reason, they don't teach us about three-dimensional space very much. And I, I use three dimensions in quotes because there's nothing inherent about space that is three-dimensional. It's all in how we're thinking about it. Mm. It's a, a three-axis Cartesian coordinate system that is based upon cubes that give us three dimensions. However, um, as Fuller would tell you, you can easily and more accurately divide it into four dimensions and model that using tetrahedrons, actually. Tetrahedrons mm. and octahedrons going together. Um, like Fuller, I, I, I dive into the deep end sometimes, but before getting there, I, I, this introduction to the platonic solids through Fuller was very interesting because, as he pointed out, it's the tetrahedron with four triangular faces is structurally stable, um, and it doesn't change its shape. Whereas a cube is not structurally stable, and a cube is the next what they they're called polyhedra. We know polygons, the flat shapes, but we don't aren't taught polyhedra. And it's it's changing, and in schools they are doing this. And I think Fuller had a huge impact for reaching a lot of people who then go, oh yeah, this should be taught. But still, it's I, I go around and do workshops. I teach a lot of kids. It's generally not. Um, our society doesn't understand them much. I lived in Japan. In Japan, everybody knows the shapes by the Japanese names because they learn them in school. It's part of the curriculum. There's, there's no question about that. They're like, yeah, of course, we, we know that. Uh -huh. And I'm like so surprised, but it's just not one of the – it's not in the standards, it seems, in most in – most, because they just say geometry. Something about these discovering these platonic solids then just just got your attention is what I'm hearing. Well, the big the big thing was when I built the models, the if you if you imagine and Fuller would do this thought experiment a lot when he, and he, and if you look back, there's there's hundreds of hours of Fuller giving talks, and he would often demonstrate these concepts with models because he felt that they were so important to understanding how the universe works. And if you don't understand this, you can't understand much. So it's a, it's the primary structural systems are where you need to start. If you imagine that you have a necklace made out of long beads and there are six long beads, I could arrange those beads so that you would get a six-sided polygon, which is called a Oh, uh, shoot. <laughs> Hexagon. Exactly. See, now we, we do learn these. Right. However, if I was moving that necklace around, I could fold it flat with no problem. The beads are such that it could fold flat. And he would demonstrate this sometimes, but you didn't need to because you can imagine it in your mind. If you take away one of those beads, you could get down to a five-sided shape, which is another polygon called Pentagon. a... Pentagon. Exactly. Pentagon. Again, you could fold it flat, take out another bead, and you've got a four-sided shape, which is square. Square. However, if you if you tweak it like this, it becomes a diamond before it goes completely flat. 
Right. Ah. Right. It will go flat again right. with four beats. If you take out another bead, you get down to three beats. And it locks into a triangle. It mm-hmm. does not fold flat. That right. triangle is structurally stable. It is the only structurally stable polygon. And the reason for it basically is that each corner is a fulcrum that is then stabilized by a brace on the other side. And they're right. compression members. Tension and compression is going on there, but it's structurally stable. So according to Fuller, all structure is based on triangles. So that concept is demonstrable when you build a tetrahedron. There are four triangles. It's very structurally sound. And when I give workshops, what I basically do is is have them start by building. I do it different ways, but they build with marshmallows and toothpicks, a cube and a tetrahedron. Mm. And they discover that the cube will not hold its shape. It will fold flat completely. Whereas the tetrahedron holds its shape quite well. And the main reason, because it's all triangles and the cube is not. If you wanted to stabilize that cube, the best way to do it, if you think about it, would be to exactly what what are you what are you? I, I'm motioning the the signal of a, a cross brace. I'm uh, exactly and what and what would what would happen if you put a cross brace across one of the faces? Um, it, well, it just immediately stabilizes the. It stabilizes the, it by dividing it into oh uh, triangles. Two triangles. Now, if you stabilize all of the faces of that cube, how many braces would you need? Uh, Six. Exactly. Because a cube, another name for a cube is a hexahedron because it has six faces. So you got the four faces of the tetrahedron, six faces of the hexahedron. These are both polyhedra. The plural of polyhedron is polyhedra. And if you... I going back to what I mentioned about the modern science of topology, they talk about three different parts of polyhedra. You have the faces, which is where the names, the Greek names come from. You also have the corners, or they have they have a more technical name, but the the corners are in topology vertices. Vertex is the singular one. So you have vertices. And then you have the connections between the vertices, which in topology they call edges. So you've got the edges, you've got the faces, and you've got the vertices. How many edges does a tetrahedron have? This is a thought question. Six, but I'm. That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. Six. Because if you imagine you've got your triangle, you got three. And if you put a point above it and you connect to that, that's three. So you've got six. Interestingly enough, if you stabilize that cube, what you're actually doing is putting an internal tetrahedron that stabilizes the cube. Those six edges form a tetrahedron. And if you wanted to stabilize it even more, you could cross brace in the other direction, dividing each square into four triangles. And you'd have another tetrahedron. So two interlocking tetrahedrons can fit inside of that cube to really make it structurally stable, which is often what happens in the buildings that we are in. They're they're structurally stabilized, often by material, which creates those connections as well. Um, So, 
And Fuller went into this in great and elaborate detail many times over his life um, in public addresses as well as in his books and video. And at times he is almost, well, he's repetitive, (laughs) these ideas. But at that time, the video was not ubiquitous and you couldn't find this stuff. So he was often repeating them. But um, if you do see old footage of Fuller, very often he will be teaching these concepts with models. Hmm. In a podcast, because you can't see them, um, it's, you, you're going to have to use the theater of the mind to imagine them, which is easy to do. And the thing that you don't get is the actual structural stability. And that's what I, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. You think about it and you go, yeah. But then when you feel it in your hands, that's where I was like, why aren't they teaching this to kindergartners? That I really felt that that, that, that it needs to be done and that every mm. kid, kid needs to know what a tetrahedron is like they know what a cube is. Uh, that's, uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to different projects of construction projects I had as a kid. And yeah, I just have that sense. Like I built a, a bed frame, but there was no cross braces. So it was just rickety and not so great, but throw one cross brace on there and it changes the whole game. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's always happening. Uh, and the interesting part about Fuller is he takes this idea then down into the atomic level and mm. how atoms and molecules are operating as well. Um, and that profoundly influenced me as well. Um, I actually built all of the the platonic solids first, the the five platonic solids. So let's see how many you know. I, I like to always I like to always test our educational system. This is don't worry. Most people okay. know none of them. Unless you're a Dungeons and Dragons player. Because uh, the dice in Dungeons and Dragons. Oh right. It, the different dice. I, I have yes. to admit, I'm uh, I'd have to completely spit. I'll, I'll all give you I'll give answer. you some I'll give you some clues. Okay. What would you what would you now hedron, because they're all polyhedron, is important just like polygons. So what would you call an eight-sided? Shape. An octahedron. Exactly. Now, do you do you know what that looks like? That's the question. Boy. See? I, our I can picture an system, octagon, but I can't picture an octahedron. You can, but we're just not. If you think of an Egyptian pyramid, that's half of an octahedron. It has a mm. square base. It has a square base and four triangles on the top. So if you lift up that square base and put four triangles on the other side, you get an uh, octahedron. Boom. Yes. Interestingly, now, what do you think? Would that be structurally stable or not? My assumption would be that would be very stable. It is. You are, you are correct. And the reason is those eight triangles. Interesting. Also interesting is that shape has the one square that I just talked about. It's actually deceiving because there are three different squares in that octahedron. Now, again, going back to the basic topology, we had six edges with the tetrahedron. How many faces? Uh, one, four. Four. How many vertices? Vertices are the corners, right? So yep. three, four, four. Four. Think of your cube. How many faces? Uh, cube would be six faces. How many vertices? Eight. And how many edges? Oh, boy. 
12. Exactly. Think of the octahedron now. How many faces? Eight. How many vertices? Oh, boy. Think the Egyptian pyramid. 12? 12 again? Vertices. Corners. Corner. Okay, 12 edges. 12 edges is correct. Vertices would be one, two, six. Six vertices. Exactly. So, interestingly, with the cube and the octahedron, they have the same number, but it's flipped. And in geometry, they, they are considered duals. Octahedrons and tetrahedrons are complementary geometric shapes called duals because their edges and vertices are flipped. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Little kids can understand this, but we're not taught it. So yeah. I, I was like, wow, this is a huge gap. In I wish I would have known this. Um, and I dove in very deep right away. Um, the next shape in Dungeons and Dragons um, is actually the 12-sided shape. So dodecahedron, perhaps? Exactly, the dodecahedron. And the dodecahedron, usually the most common dodecahedron that we think of, and in the platonic solids, is a pentagonal dodecahedron, where all the faces are pentagons. Wow. Yeah. So it's actually uh, that shape, what do you think? Is structurally stable or not? Well, I'm, I'm going to guess yes, because we're on the triangles and we're building on that. Well, but I, those I can't faces, really visualize those faces, it. It, Well, it's, it's actually, if, if you, it's, it is tricky to visualize the, the dodecahedron. I, in, and it's even tougher to build <laughs> than visualize it. But a dodecahedron oh, okay. has 12 pentagonal faces. And because they're pentagons, they're actually not structurally stable. So if you build that out of marshmallows and toothpicks, it's going to fold flat like the cube. Okay. Because, because those faces are pentagons and they're not structurally stable and they don't stabilize on their own. So it's, it's not structurally stable. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Googling it right now. So I'm yeah, looking to at it. Hopefully, it hopefully, the like listeners, it. hopefully the listeners will, will just Google platonic solids too so that they can be looking and go oh okay i get it if you play dungeons and dragons the five die that are with the the set that's uh where people will run into them and they know the next shape is actually the 20-sided die uh. and some people know what that's called but it's got a popularity now because it's like the most common dice to use for like damage or whatever i I started playing D&D a long time ago, but like D&D players know these shapes. It's called an I icosahedron. Icosa means 20. Gotcha. What, what shape are those faces? Do you know that die? You- uh, I'm, I'm Googling as quick as I can. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually uh, got all triangular faces. Oh, so that would be super stable, I would assume. I'm- exactly, exactly right. And basically, you can imagine it is you've got and how how to build it if you were doing it with marshmallows and toothpicks. You may make a pentagon, and then you make a little pentagonal pyramid out of that, and then you do another pentagon pyramid uh... like that, and then you twist them just a little bit, and you make a belt of triangles between those two, and that creates that shape. It's the closest you can get to a sphere with equilateral triangles. So of all of these shapes, we're dealing with, if you're using the same toothpicks, 
or the same edge length, you get equilateral shapes. Um, so all sides are the same, all edges are the same. Um, they're very nice. And that shape, the icosahedron, is the closest you can get to a sphere with equilateral triangles. Mm. Interestingly, most geodesic domes are based on that shape, the icosahedron, and how Fuller, what Fuller really investigated and discovered on his own, though it seems that there were some geodesic um, structures um, built prior to Fuller, but he discovered them independently on his own and then continued to develop them over and over and elaborately. So it's not like he was just knocking off something that he saw. Um, it was, but there was a planetarium dome in Germany on the Zeiss at Zeiss lenses. They, they put a planetarium on there uh, on the rooftop that was um, designed by a German architect. Um, and it was a geodesic, but it does not seem that Fuller knew of it until long after he had come up with his own independent discovery. Um, and the geometry of his first geodesic domes were different than that, than that dome as well. Mm. It's, it's interesting that we start with the geometry, but I'm sure that, that Bucky would approve. Um, that is what, what uh, all of his friends called him. I never had the opportunity to meet him, though I have been a member and an advisor to the Buckminster Fuller Institute for a long time and had the great honor and privilege to become friends with his daughter, Allegra, and um, I know his, his grandkids and, and other members of his family. So, um, But Fuller himself, I, I was exposed to him through his works, um, not, not in meeting him. Right. It's it's fascinating. I'm looking at these shapes online, um, and when I look at the dodecahedron, that to me is the the fullerene, the buckyball kind of maybe maybe not. That's what it reminds. But it looks like a soccer ball. Well, the the buckyball is actually what is called a truncated icosahedron. Truncation means to cut the corners off. So Plato had the five Platonic solids: the tetrahedron, octahedron, cube dodecahedron and icosahedron. And Archimedes took those five and he truncated all of them. And so you get 13 shapes called the trunk, tr called Archimedes solids. And uh, the Buckminster Fullerene is based upon the truncating a icosahedron. So if you cut the corners off of that shape, you would get the soccer ball shape. When I'm usually telling people this, I'm, I've got I've got models around. I don't have an icosahedron with me, but I do have tetrahedrons and octahedrons oh, nice. handily around. And you can see that they are, they don't lose their shapes. The icosahedron, if you, if you cut the corners off at the vertices, then you would get 12 pentagons and 20 hexagons. Oh. It's, called, it's a truncated icosahedron. That's what it's called. Gotcha. Um, and it is... It is quite structurally stable on, a, on an atomic level in particular. For your listeners, um, the buckyballs were named after Buckminster Fuller. He did not discover them. He was dead. Um, it was named in his honor, partly because the scientists that were doing the experiments, well, not partly, because the scientists that were doing the experiments actually 
figured out the structure by thinking about domes and looking at pictures of domes and recalling being in domes. And they realized that if you just had hexagons, it would be flat. And um, if you're talking about carbon atoms, if you have a flat grid of hexagon carbon atoms in layers, you have graphite. That's, that's mm. an allotrope of carbon, pure carbon in hexagonal layers. And there, there's a bond, there's a weak bond between those layers that actually is one of the reasons that graphite is off, is using pencil leads because the, it, it is very soft and malleable, but also you can lay down a layer pretty easily. These days, these days, a single layer of graphite is called graphene. Um, the scientists were awarded the Nobel Prize in, in chemistry for in 2010 for being able to get graphene. And the, the process that they came up with is taking adhesive tape and putting it on graphite and then taking tape on top of that tape and keeping going down until they got to a single layer. Um, but that single layer is, is totally flat, like chicken wire. Mm, versus the buckyball, which is it the soccer ball. It doesn't close back on itself. Exactly. And the scientists, what they were doing was studying scientists from England, Harry Croto applied for time to go on a laser that was down at Rice University. And he worked with uh, scientists there, Richard Smalley and Robert Curl, to do this experiment. And he was studying carbon clusters in space. And he wanted to, to blast some graphite with that big laser and see what happens and study the clusters that form. And when they were doing this, they kept, they kept getting the reading in the mass spectrometer of a huge spike for C60 and then a smaller spike for C70. And they continued um, these experiments and every time they would get the same results. So they're saying, okay, so there's a 60 cluster and there's a 70 cluster. And they called it a camel hump. And they were like, what could it be? And it was through thinking about their, both of them, uh, Richard Smalley and, and Harry Croto had both visited the Expo 67 dome in Montreal for Expo 67. And they were like, maybe it has something to do with domes. So they started looking at pictures and they recalled um, a star dome that he had had as a child. So, um, actually, Smalley went back and made a cardboard model and figured out a truncated icosahedron was the shape, but he didn't know the name, what it was called. He was actually just building model and he started to use pentagons and it folded back on itself. Instead of the hexagons, which were flat, the, the five-ness made it become spherical. And so the, he came up with that shape and they actually were celebrated the next morning when like, oh, this, this is it. And he figured out a, a bonding pattern, alternating the bond pattern through. And so they, they cracked it that way. Um, they called up the, the math department and asked what, what shape is this? And he said, well, the technical name is a truncated icosahedron, but what you got there is a soccer ball. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 12 pentagons. So now think about the back to our icosahedron. Now, that's a little trickier. I'll, I'll give you a formula that Bucky always taught, which was by a mathematician, Dutch. His, his name was Euler. It's spelled E-U-L-E-R, um, but pronounced Euler. And he came up with a formula for figuring out 
the parts of a polyhedron. And Bucky was very fond of this formula, which is that if you take the faces plus the, the vertices, you get the edges. It's equal to edges plus two. So if you think about the tetrahedron, four faces, right? How many mm -hmm. vertices? Vertices of the corners of four. Exactly. So you've got eight is equal to the number of edges, which is we remember six, six plus two. So ah. eight equals eight. So if, if you're missing, if you've got two of the, the variables, you can figure out the third. Ah, you got right. Okay. So with the icosahedron, though it's tricky, um, it's tougher to figure that one out. There are the 20 faces. Now, with the, with the vertices, remember the pentagonal pyramids that you would start with? Mm -hmm. How many vertices are in that one? Oh, boy, you're testing my, my brain yeah. power. Well, six? I, so the, six, exactly. So the audience is along with you there. You've got the Pentagon and one above it. And you form the icosahedron by taking two of those and putting them together, but you don't have any more vertices. So the number of vertices for that is 12. Gotcha. The, the total. So right. you can figure out the edges by putting 20 plus 12 is 32 is equal to edges plus two. So if you subtract 30 two, edges, 30, 30 edges. edges. Awesome. Exactly right. 30 edges. So that gives you that. All right. A basic introduction to what Fuller later called synergetics. He started calling it energetic geometry, which he really dove into while he was at Black Mountain College teaching in the summer of 1948. Now, I'm jumping very far ahead in Bucky's life. I don't know where you want to go, but in 1948, Fuller was... He had already done a lot of different things, um, including um, the invention of the Dimaxian car and the Dimaxian house. And, but he was delving more into the geometry. And the first geodesic domes were built while he was at Black Mountain College in the summer of 48 and 49. Gotcha. Interestingly, the first summer, the, the dome did not stand and... It wasn't until the next year that they made one that was structurally stable. Okay. And it was... Uh, there it was. Yeah, well, I, I, as you can tell, there are lots of stories, and, and I can uh, go on for a long time on them. Um, but it's, it's useful to get a little more background on Fuller before, before you jump right into the geodesics. But he did believe that this synergetic geometry was the key to understanding how the how nature builds gotcha he would call it his quest for nature's coordinate system and mm. this discovery of of c60 which croto and curl and and smalley named the paper that they sent to nature for its discovery they named it buckminster fullerene right. c60 and uh, in in honor to to fuller and so it's a whole class of different structures. Actually, the 70, um, the 71 was a belt. There was an additional belt of hexagons around the middle. So it's more of an oblong shape, not spherical, like the truncated icosahedron that gave you another shape. But there's a vast assortment of them, just like geodesic domes, 
that can be made. And then nanotubes, which are like that hexagonal cage that is wrapped around into a tube and then capped at the end with half of a buckyball were discovered. Mm. Um, actually, the discovery of, of C60 was in 1985 and nanotubes were in 1991. Um, and they received the Nobel Prize for the discovery of of Buckminster Fullerene in 1996. Yeah, I, re I remember that. I uh, My first job out of engineering school was with Texas Instruments, and I supported the research and development facilities. And one of the engineers or scientists that I supported was a grad student in this program. So he, uh, I remember him flying out for the Nobel Prize and, and talking to us about, you know, despite the fact that he was a grad student, they treated him like he was just, you know, part of the group and equal in the whole thing. So I remember so he was all. on their the team on on their yeah yeah, yeah. no there was a, there was yeah. it was a small core team. Um, there's a there's a great book written about its discovery called Perfect Symmetry, because um, again that mm. that molecule of sixty carbon atoms is the most spherical uh, molecule known to man, and, right. and it's and, we, and so and it's also incredibly strong. When you say C60, I think you just said it. That means there's 60 carbon atoms. Exactly. The the vertices, there are 60 vertices. And oh, the 60 right, carbon atoms. Which would be each vertice. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. For the truncated icosahedron is that. I, I don't have my keys on me, but I have one on the keychain, um, on my keychain. Oh, nice. Actually, the Buckminster Fuller Institute um, used that as a, a gift for, for donors. Um one year, uh, if you go to their website, you will see a picture of that right on the front page. But it, the, the significance of this particular shape being named after Fuller is quite huge. If you think there are three allotropes of carbon, diamond is the first one. And interestingly, diamond in tetrahedral arrangements give you, I, I, excuse me, carbon atoms in tetrahedral arrangements give you diamond. Um, and by mm. a tetrahedral arrangement, I mean that you have a carbon atom in the middle and then a carbon atom at each corner of a tetrahedron that it goes out and they bond. And it makes a, a lattice that is um, very strong. Then you've got graphite and then you've got fullerenes. And fullerenes are a whole class of many different molecules that are named after um, fuller, which I think he would see as verification of what he was talking about, um, though he was not here when it was discovered. Right, right. Well, I, I want to circle back because sure. I just um, appreciate your early childhood memories were, were uh, geodesic domes on the playground because I hadn't really made that connection, but suddenly I'm aware that I had played on those kind of a popular playground item, I want to say. I remember one of the most on popular on the planet. They most, yeah. most playgrounds these days have them. Um, interestingly, if you look at some of the new playground equipment, they'll have like elaborate icosahedrons in chains and things. They're looking at the geometry to get kids familiarized with them. Um, in Germany, they have some really amazing um playgrounds that they're building to explore the geometry but also like build these huge shapes you can climb on yeah no i remember playing on a geodesic dome in preschool and in fact my, my kids are teenagers now but their preschool playground had a dome that they would climb on and hang from and yeah 
it's and it's it's the structural stability of that. There's there's a playground not far from here that has a great dome, and I love to just go over and see the kids and uh, the time of their lives on that particular. And it's it's almost replaced monkey bars in most most um, mm, yeah. Like they're a lot less common. Domes are more common um, because they're quite um, easy to climb. Well, let's circle back around um, to Buckminster Fuller. What what can you tell us about his early days, his childhood, his influences? He, uh, I know he was Unitarian, and yeah, well, he. Or, I mean, he was born in eighteen ninety five. You'd like to point out that that was the year that the first automobile was sold, as well as the fact that um, X rays were discovered that year. He was born in Milton, Massachusetts, um, a suburb of of Boston. And his great aunt, Margaret Fuller, was the first editor of the first literary magazine in America, The Dial. She was good friends with Emerson and Thoreau. And she's known her through her writings, uh, Margaret Fuller as a transcendentalist. Mm. So she is a relative, a very direct relative that his family, his, uh, his father and grandfather's grandfather and I don't know how many generations it went back all attended Harvard Hmm. and eventually Fuller did as well he went to Harvard and the the other thing to point out and he liked to point out about himself he was born very nearsighted he he wore very thick glasses and couldn't see very well at all all he saw uh, without glasses which he didn't get glasses until he was five were large patterns and he often told the story later that when he was in kindergarten, they were given toothpicks and dried peas that had been soaked that were a, as a building set. Um, they were actually out of Froebel's um, original gift series, Froebel being the inventor of kindergartens. And this was a building set that was common back at that time. And Everybody would make houses out of squares like they had seen and cubes, and they'd have a triangular roof on it, but that's how they would, because that's what they saw. He tells the story of the model that he built caused quite a commotion because it was quite different. And what he had built was what he later um, got a patent on called the octet truss, which was tetrahedral and octahedral shapes going together. The tetrahedron and the octahedron go together to fill all space. And so it's a very structurally stable shape. Actually, in architecture, it's now called space framing. And Fuller mm. um, eventually got a patent on it. But when he was in, in kindergarten and building this, um, his teacher showed it around to a lot of people because it was very strong. And that had a big impact on him, he, he always claimed later in his life. But he went to Harvard and he was fairly disillusioned with the societal classes that were happening at Harvard and the clubs. And um, he wound up taking a trip to New York City and blowing his first year's tuition in a single weekend there and got kicked out of Harvard. And he wound up going up to a textile mill run by his uncle in in Quebec, the province of Quebec. And he, uh, in short order, re-engineered most of their processes within the textile mill to be much more efficient because he was mechanically prone and liked to build things and um, was always interested in things. He actually grew up, um, I I should mention, um, 
his his aunt bought three islands off the coast of Maine in 19, I want to say 1908, when when he was quite young, I think 12 years old, he started going there and he would spend his summers there. It's called Bear Island. And the Fuller family still have that island. And I was I was lucky enough to spend a week there one summer with Allegra and a group from Montreal. But that actually influenced him greatly. Um, Mm. He was a a natural sailor and sailed a lot, but also would row every day to go get the mail, two miles every day, both ways to get the mail and ice when they needed it on the island. But that had a huge impact on his thinking, um, sailing in particular. And he, he often would refer to sailors as some of the first technologists on the planet um, utilizing so many different things to to sail. So after re-engineering this this textile mill and and aiding the processes, everybody felt that he deserved a second chance, and he went back to Harvard. And he he describes it at times as he fired himself again. Um, and <laughs> and World War One was just starting up, so he joined the Navy, and the Navy recognized his abilities right away and sent him to an Annapolis and he was trained in an in Annapolis and he was put on one of the first radio ships to make the first transatlantic bro- uh, transmission on uh, as a radio ship and he oh, wow. he realized at that young age when he was that age that things were changing drastically actually when he arrived at Harvard the subway had just the first subway opened that year from Cambridge to downtown um, Boston. And he realized how technology was changing the planet and making it much smaller because what was in his father's day, a half day ride by horse just to get down there was now seven minutes. So that was changing humans relationship. Technology was changing our relationship to the planet very rapidly and the Wright brothers as well um, in had had in his childhood defied all of the skeptics that said it's not possible to fly and humans were then doing that. So that had a huge impact on the way that he thought about technology and ev- everything. And he committed himself to what he would later describe as a 50 year long experiment of what he called himself was guinea pig B that he started to, to save everything that he wrote on. And he started to compile a huge chronograph is what they call it in the Navy. Um, He later called it the chronophile, but he had the large in in the end of his career had the largest personal archive of any human on the planet. And it's now housed, housed at Stanford university, but he was very interested, and when he was in the Navy, he was he realized that Navy captains are are trained to think comprehensively about the planet, particularly mm. be- before they were in contact with radio, which was happening while he was there, because they would be independent. They you couldn't even communicate with them, so they had to think about the whole planet as a single system that was reachable by their vessels. And the captains were thinking much more, were trained to think much more comprehensively about the planet than anybody else at the time. Excellent. 
I'm just struck by a number of interesting influences, like the fact that his vision was really poor when he was a little child and he saw in patterns, because he seems like a very systemic uh, systems thinker, uh, pattern recognition. And I'm just curious how that vision impairment uh, led to perhaps some just pattern recognition type features. And then I hear, you know, here's a man that grew up in, in what, the second, uh, what you call the second uh, industrial revolution, maybe, where he's witnessing the subway, he's witnessing transatlantic transmission, he's also, you know, the birth of the automobile, but also involved with these uh, this submarines, was it, where you have to kind of, you're kind of cut off from communication, but you have to think in a big picture so that, because you're- And at that time, the Navy in general was, uh, they, they, had, they had small transmissions between ships, that were going together mm-hmm. in convoys, but they would be out of range. But right. it just came in during World War One, and he was actually there for that. So he was having very profound insights into particularly technology. And one of the things that he realized was it's first utilized for weaponry. Um, and in his right. in his later writings, he talks about how you know this this survival of the fittest Malthusian. Um, approach to the planet was putting technology first as weaponry so that you could dominate. Mm. And the British Empire was the first global empire. Um, They actually, the empire on which the sun never set because they controlled all of the main shipping arteries. That's that's how they did it. So um, he, he would later like to point out how and he was thinking about it even then, that it's really a one ocean world. They all connect. Right, right. And then you get the, what is it, the Dymaxion map where he shows one, basically one giant landmass surrounded by, I'd never thought of it as one ocean before. But. Yeah, he, he calls it a one island, one ocean world. Exactly. And the Dymaxion map came came later, but there was an evolution of it. And and it's interesting because, and I, and I often, I, I really like, to give this background because you can see how his thinking developed over time. Um, and the, the military was a, had a huge impact on him, particularly the Navy and how thinking as a sailor, um, he actually wound up um, patrolling off the coast of, of America um, in, in his own vessel first, but um, he was, uh, they, they understood his talent, but, after he he got married at that time as well, and then afterwards he wound up having a series of jobs in a number of different things. But eventually, his father-in-law, um, Anne Hewitt's father, was an architect who came up with a building system, and um, his Bucky was sent to Chicago with with Anne to um, actually run a the company that was set up to put it this building system and they built a large number of houses it was a a, a building block system that had uh kind of you think like rebar going through to stabilize these walls um and they built quite a large number of structures but in the end it was not um the, the business was not quite successful under his direction and he felt um, 
that he became quite disgraced. Um, people that had invested mm. had lost money and lost confidence in him. Um, and he felt v- terrible. Um, and another uh, tragedy struck his, his daughter. He had a daughter. Um, she, at the age of four, I believe, contracted spiral meningitis and polio and died. And it really profoundly impacted him. Um, and he felt like he was, uh, he was a, not a success. Um, and he, he felt that he, he actually tells this, told the story uh, much later, numerous times, but he was, went to the shore of Lake Michigan and was contemplating suicide. Um, think, thinking about just um, that he should swim out as far as he could go and just be done with it. Um, at, at this point, he um, he did have uh, another daughter, but he his he had taken the loss of his first daughter very hard, and um, now this business not doing well had a huge psychological impact on him. But he realized at that moment and. Um, in various different tellings, he, he heard a voice saying, you belong to the universe. You don't have the right to this. You, you, and, and through that experience, um, a friend describes it as an ego disillusionment um, mm-hmm. experience where he committed himself to trying to discover what a single human with no, like, a poor married with child human could actually do that no corporation or religion or government could do. And as he tells it, he was then silent for the next year. Um, he wanted to, oh, wow. to reorient his thinking. Now I, I asked his daughter um, Allegra about that. And she said, well, he didn't talk much. I had a, I had a, <laughs> a difficult time imagining that his, his wife would put up with him not saying anything um, and he could be prone to exaggeration, I think, but um, he was basically uh, secluded and working on what he said he wanted to do his own thinking. And this is yeah. really where the guinea pig bee kicked in, where he, he, he resolved that this was now what the, his, his life was to do what he could do for humanity, um, for others. And he set out on that mission. Well, let me just, I I wanted to jump in here. And it sounds like there was multiple tellings of this story, but it's pretty important to our our version of of the tale. And there's a quote, I think I pulled this off Wikipedia, that the voice declared, um, I'm going to just read the quote. From now on, you never need await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. Your significance will remain forever obscure to you, but you may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experience to the highest advantage of others. I just thought that was a really... It, uh, exactly. And and there's a, a recent book by the artist Jonathan Keats called You Belong to Universe, I believe, uh, all about Bucky, uh, Bucky and the ideas that I would recommend um, for, for your listeners if they are interested in that, where he focuses on that. Personally, I have uh, enough skepticism, like the, the voice said all of that to you, knowing Fuller, he he heard it, I, I no doubt, 
that he, he that the message or that was the transmission. I don't know. Like that's right. it's a it's how he tells the story later, but he he would tell it that way. Um, right. And for anybody who's had a profound experience like that, sometimes the universe opens up and and does communicate with you in that way, I think. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah. It's it's interesting that he really it was profound a profound experience for him, no doubt. And it eventually led him to the, well, he, the first thing that he really started to focus on after that was um, he felt that humans would need housing and he had been doing mm. this, this housing project. So he focuses efforts on, on housing and structures. Um, and he wrote and self-published a book at that time that has diagrams and designs um, that was called 4D Time Lock. He wrote that, I believe, in 1927. He self-published it. Um, and it's, most people, it's pretty far out there. Like, if you read that, it's <laughs> like, wow. But one of the things that he has in there are these structures that would be um, single-mast tensile structures 10 story structures that you could dock dirigibles or zeppelins at the top of and he was he saw the need for those because at that time zeppelins were the way that people were traveling over the planet and they were usually they were going these polar routes starting with the zeppelins they were going uh, uh, over the top because it was the shortest distance than going across the ocean um, so you would need these docking stations. So he like designed them and has drawings of them. Um, the 4D towers, he calls them. And um, But it also led him to then develop what he later termed as the Dymaxion house, the first Dymaxion house, which is a single family living unit that is also suspended from a single pole um, with tension members. It was actually hexagonal in shape. Um, but he developed that one, um, in, so that in 1929, he had a, uh, a scale model of it that he had set up in, um, actually 1929 is most famous for the stock market crash that happened. And it was right at the same time that he was like out showing this model and then the stock market crashed, but it was a, a positive futuristic looking structure that different businesses in New York city, the Carlisle hotel gave him a suite to set up this model and people would come in and be fascinated and look at it. Um, mm. But also I believe in Marshall fields in, in Chicago um, it was, it was on display there for a while. And it was somebody in there, in their marketing department that came up with from talking with Fuller Dymaxion, which was a word that he later adopted um, or he adopted at that time, which was dynamic maximum tension is the three words that were melded together to make it. Um, but he would, he, the, as the story goes, he and a friend that he met down in the, in the West village at a, at a bar that he liked to frequent um, Isama Noguchi, who is a now well-known um, Japanese-American artist who lived 
in the city at the time. And they became fast friends and they would hang out with notebooks for days in the, in the suite in the Carlisle <laughs> Hotel during the day, during the daytime, showing it to people at night. That's where they stayed. Um, and he, uh, he would, he showed it to the New York Architectural Society basically in the end. And, and it was very unique structure. It was trying to take airline technology and, and aviation technology and apply it to building made out of metal mm. and, and tension cables, just like the airplanes at the time, um, and suspended from this single mast in the middle. But it had room for parking underneath. There was a deck at the top, so you could look out, the observation deck. He, he developed all sorts of ideas for how to make these rooms very livable, um, and he showed this model. Um, the architects of the time did not like the idea of a mass-produced housing system because it would replace their jobs. They felt that it was quite cold and it, they kind of wrote him off as a futuristic sci-fi um, crank that, that was coming up with this idea. It, it never went past the model stage. Shortly after that, he took over a magazine. He, he, that was, I think it was called T-Square and he renamed it Shelter and he published this magazine in New York City I think from 1930 to 32, um, all about these ideas of shelter, but he was also um, working with artists like Noguchi. So some of Noguchi's work was featured on, on a cover issue. Um, and he was exploring ideas in words and in structures and in models, um, and also thinking comprehensively about the planet, that, that experience in the Navy, how he saw technology as uniting the planet, and he focused his energies towards transportation. Um, everybody hears about like the flying car guys. Fuller was probably the first real, one of the first flying car guys. He developed what he initially called the Omni transport, um, but it was a car. It, it became the Damaxian car. Um, actually, when his mother passed away around that time and he got a small inheritance and he put it all into developing an idea that he had for a three-wheeled vehicle that steered from the back um, like a boat or an airplane does instead of front wheel. So the single wheel in the back was how you would steer it. Again, um, taking the cue from not only um, airplanes and boats, but um, fish and and birds in in an, uh, an example of biomimicry how they turn which they can do much sharper is from the back um so he came up with a base he he designed a car that looks a lot like an airplane because he was concerned about aerodynamics um for two reasons one is that you could do more with less and that is a design strategy that he started to develop even back then getting more for the resources invested in anything and so the model t's that were driving around on the road at that time had no aerodynamics there were boxes on wheels and he saw the need for aerodynamics in in both boat, boats and airplanes so it looks like an airplane fuselage a lot like one uh, it actually doesn't have a rear window in it, um, but it does have a, a rear view 
mirror periscope that actually you could look, you could see out the back because it was shooting over the top of the vehicle. Um, but it could fit 11 people. They took a off the shelf Ford motor. It could go over a hundred miles an hour, um, they say. And he built it with a, he, he hired a famous yacht designer, Burgess Sterling to work with him. And they built it in a boatyard in Connecticut. They built um, prototypes. They wound up building three prototypes in the end. Um, and Fuller became quite well known because he would be driving it in Manhattan. And when it would go down the street, it would draw such a crowd that eventually he was forbidden from going below Canal Street because it would tie up traffic too bad below that. About what year was this? That was 1933. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this is early. Early. This futuristic and, space car running around New and when York. You see when you see the footage of it, um, it's great because actually he the turning radius of it was could go inside of a Model T. They show that, but they also had police officers directing traffic in the middle of intersections, and he would go and do a 360 degree turn around those police officers because of the turning radius being so tight, and then continue on. Um, and they have they have good footage of this. Um, so he became quite well known. H.G. Um, Wells wanted to ride in the car. They have footage of Amelia Earhart who. Um, also wrote in it, 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 it became, uh, you know, it was a novelty again, like his house, this future, like the, the, the newsreels would run it as like the cars of the future, but the, the car shows wouldn't have that car in it. Um, so I believe it was in Chicago that there was a big car show that he decided to bring the car and give rides out front in it. And he allowed a, a race car driver who was at the show to take it for a spin. And um, unfortunately, it wound up in an accident where there was a fatality. And mm. that caused, uh, even though later the police report showed that it was not a fault of the car or the design, it was actually the other driver, but fatalities were fairly rare at that time, but also gathered a lot of attention. And all of the backers that he had for the project backed out. And so mm. it never was commercialized. Um, he was well on the way. There were three prototypes made and a couple of them still exist, but the Dimaxian car never went into production. And it was a pretty big blow to him um, when what he was working on didn't come to, to fruition. Um, he, he did envision it to be able to be something that you could actually go into the water with eventually and also put wings on and fly. Um, it was designed to to be that way. The original concept was for omni transport, um, but none of it came to fruition in the end. Um, and he wound up going back and getting some jobs. He um, again, like these, his efforts didn't pay off, and people were like, "You've got a wife and kids. You've got to, you've got to do something." You. So he wound up um, actually. He first worked for Dodge Phelps, a copper mining um, company. He, he became um, a research um, scientist. They, they, they recognized his abilities and they hired him. They wanted him on their team because of all that he was, the experience that he had and certainly the car um, had, and, and the house were both metal. 
Um, so he continued mm-hmm. to design while he worked with them. He came up with what he called the Dimaxian bathroom, which was a uh, metal formed multiple piece bathroom that would use much less water. Again, this idea of doing more mm-hmm. with less. He redesigned um, the shower to be more of a mist gun that would clean you better than a shower and use much less water. Um, also, um, he he saw the need for being able to collect the waste because you could then utilize that waste. Again, um, he thought that saw that waste was actually just resources misunderstood that could be utilized. Um, and biomass is a fine example of how that that could happen. Um, but he also then um, took a job at Fortune Magazine. He became the science and technology editor at Fortune Magazine. And in 1940, they published um, a big 10th anniversary issue. And um, in it, he mapped out, actually, I, I jumped ahead because he published a book in 1938 called Nine Chains to the Moon. Wow. And Nine Chains to the Moon, very interesting book. The nine chains would be if you, if you took all of the humans on the planet and lined them up um, end to end, it would make nine chains to the moon and back is by his calculations. And very interesting book. Um, the hardbound version, which I have a copy of there, they're getting pricey, but I got it long before the, the interest in Fuller was as big as it is. Um, it's, it's got a copper uh, cover to it. It's copper colored. When he was working at Dobbs Phelps, I guess they, they helped him with that. I think there were only 5,000 of the hardcover issued. Um, but he had a map of the world in the front that um, shows the, what you were mentioning before, the, the, the way that the landmass on the planet is, is laid out is actually a one continuous one. And you can, um, if you wanted to start at, it, it, it's hard to describe that, but he later developed it into the, the Dimaxian map. But if you imagine North America in the middle, if you go up from Canada and it, it goes, there's the pole, but then on the other side, there, there is all of the Eurasian landmass that goes that way. And it goes all the way to Australia. And then North America goes down to South America down to Antarctica. So you've got this long one eye gaps there, but you can see the single landmass nature. And that appears at the in the in the cover, well it's in the inside um, cover of that book. There's a map. He doesn't break it down yet into geometry, but that landmass is shown. He shows up in the book early. Gotcha. The other thing that he goes into there, um, he was profoundly influenced by Einstein and Einstein's mm. discoveries. So 4D comes out of Einstein and that 4D time lock, all of the things that were being discovered at that time. And then also he he was looking at all of the science and technology and, and discoveries and ideas that humanity has had at that time and the first other galaxies were being discovered by Hubble in 28. So all of these had a huge impact on his thinking about the universe. Um, and he realized, he, he wrote a chapter um, in it about Einstein's discovery. And um, he, he 
when he submitted the book to the publisher, the publishers came to that chapter on Einstein and um, they came back to him and said, well, you, we've looked at the list of people that understand Einstein and you're not on that list. So we really can't publish this because we don't, we don't understand Einstein, but we're not going to claim, <laughs> we're not going to claim that you do. And the story that he tells was his response was, well, Einstein just took a job at Princeton. So why don't you send it to him and see what he thinks, which the publisher, mm. which the publisher did do uh, because a couple months later, he got a call from Einstein's uh, assistant who invited him to dinner at Einstein's house. And, of course, he took the opportunity to go to Princeton and have dinner with Einstein. And he, as he tells the story, Einstein said, I've read your book and I think you understand very well, though I'm it's curious because you think that it has practical applications and I'm not sure that it does um, because oh, like wow. that's what he, he was talking about how this, this discovery would be utilized to generate, to generate energy. And uh, so the Einstein told the publishers and the publishers published it. Um, oh, and, fantastic. Yes. And uh, they, they, they took Einstein's word that, that he understood it. So, and that book was later republished in the 60s. Um, so you can get paperback copies of it. Um, so it's still available. Uh, again, his ideas are way out there at that time, but he's talking about the planet as, as a single whole system that it needs to be thought of as, as a single whole system that's all interrelated. And um, this concept then carried through when he was doing, uh, when he was working at Fortune magazine in 1940, the war had already begun in Europe, but he um, was showing how the planet was connected. And he actually had a, a whole series of charts and graphs on the utilization of energy and resources on the planet and showing how the United States was utilizing so much more than the rest of the planet already at that time. And these charts and graphs show it very clearly. And he, the U.S. had not entered into the war yet, but he suspected it was going to happen and was trying to reframe everything in a global um, way, having lived through World War I and um, seeing that another world war was was an eventuality that was likely not avoidable. Um, he was already thinking in that way. When war, when the U.S. did enter the war, um, actually the U.S. War Bureau um, hired Fuller on and brought. He he was a member of the War Bureau and uh, a special panel. He also kept developing his Dymaxion map, and in 1943 it was published in Life magazine with a. There was a pull-out color cardboard version of the map that you could assemble for yourself. Um, the really big thing about the Damaxian map, and this was the first version of the Damaxian map that changed because that version in Life magazine was not the icosahedron that it later became, the 20-sided shape. That's he, he used what is called a cube octahedron, which was a truncated cube or a truncated octahedron. Um, it's a 14-sided shape with triangles 
It's eight triangles and six squares. A little hard to imagine in your head, but he used that as the model because that's where he was and he was fascinated by that shape at the time. But he later realized that because the triangles and the squares are not the same shape, the icosahedron, which is all 20 same triangles and closest to a sphere, was better. And in, in the early 1950s, a new version of the map was put up. But the landmass was the same, actually a little more accurate in the icosahedral version. But the big, um, big revelation and um, unique thing about the fuller projection, as it's called, or the Dymaxion map, um, the fuller projection is the least distorted. The landmasses are proportionate, unlike Mercator projection maps. And a Mercator projection was developed by a Portuguese navigation expert for sailing in the 1540s. I think it was 1548. And it's a cylindrical projection, which means if you take a sphere and you wrap a piece of paper around it, it will touch at only one spot around that. And you're on the equator, huh? Exactly. Yeah. It's a great circle arc around the equator. And that's the only place that the landmass is accurate. As you move away from the equator to the north or to the south, there's a distortion that happens. The farther north you get, the more the distortion happens. And if you look on a Mercator projection down in the corner, they'll have this distortion guide and it just shows you like this and it starts at the equator. And they usually only give you the up for the northern hemisphere, but it's the same in the southern hemisphere. So that if you look at a Mercator projection map, if you look at Greenland, it's larger than Africa right. on that map, which is not the case at all. And if you look at the fuller projection, you'll see how small Greenland is in comparison to that. It's only because it's it's in the north on that projection that it's there or that that we have a misperception. We're misinformed by the Mercator projection. And if you go into 95 percent of the classrooms on the planet, that's what's on the wall still to this day. Right. Um, right. Misinforming us about the planet itself. It's interesting. I saw uh, that put the island of Japan along the east coast, and the island of Japan is actually about the same size as the east coast. But I, you know, I've I've known about Greenland and that distortion. That's the one that's commonly pointed out. But just uh, how how distorted our perception of of the world can be, yeah. just based on that map, for sure. And and interestingly, you know, if you go around the world, like I lived in Japan for four years and the Japanese put Japan right in the center of the map. But again, they're using a Mercator projection like so how they how they center it. And if you you'll find you go around the world, countries will choose a map where their country is in the middle. Like I think almost <laughs> almost all countries make that map, but they still use the Mercator projection which is misinforming them about landmass. It's, it's misinforming about so many things. It's quite useful for navigation on ships, but that's about it. After World War II was over, he had a second run at the Damaxian house because um, in, in Wichita, Kansas, there was an aircraft manufacturer that had been very busy during the war, making tons of airplanes that were being utilized in the war effort. And suddenly they had nothing to make. And so they were like, we could do your house. So he redesigned the, the Dymaxion house and they started to prototype it. Um, 
and they got one made and it was a new different design, but again, it was a single mast. And um, the, that, that model or that prototype is in the, in Dearborn, Michigan at the Ford museum there. And you can go see it. It's a round house, not hexagonal, but he had like a spinning um, air catch, a wind catcher that would be used for, um, circulating the air within it, um, all sorts of things. But just after the war, this, they they never got the prototype into production. And suddenly aircraft were in demand again. And Beach were like, oh, we're, we're, we're going to start making planes. And so it never went into production. Um, but the story that Allegra, his daughter, says is the day that he came back from working out in, in Kansas, she saw him. And he stayed up late at night at the table. And the next morning, he was extremely happy. And she says that it was the, the night that he came up with um, his first concept of, of domes. He, he was thinking about domes. Mm. And he, she, she pinpoints that time as where he first really was like, this is what I need to focus on. And he wound up um, teaching at a number of different places. Um, including, as I mentioned, Black Mountain College, which was down outside of Asheville, North Carolina, started by Joseph Elbers and his, well, run by Joseph Elbers and his wife, um, out of the Bauhaus movement from from Germany um, in the 30s. They came and established this school. And in 48, when Fuller was there in the summer session, John Cage was there. Um, Merce Cunningham was there at the same time. Uh, the the Rauschenbergs were there. Um, there were a lot of, it was a very creative place. And um, he, he arrived there uh, with his models that he was working on. He was into the geometry at that time. And one of the things that he was building models out of were Venetian blind materials. And he, um, he made a dome out of these Venetian blind materials and had attached it together with brads. If you remember what brads were, where you yeah, put it through the yeah, hole yeah. and flip, flip them out. And he built this model and there are really great photographs of this. So one day he decides they're going to go out and build a bigger one in a, in a field using the Venetian blind materials. And they were attaching them together. And the photos are incredible um after this uh, they're they're online i can send links for for viewers for a lot of these things if they're for listeners i guess if they want to see them um but they the story is told by uh, ruth azawa who was later to become a famous artist who was studying there and she and fuller had a uh he, he was a mentor to her for her whole life um she said that when they tried to get it to stand, there was a moment that it seemed like it might, and then the whole thing collapsed. And you see the collapse in the in the photos. Um, it's often referred to as the supine dome. And she said that everybody was quite disappointed except for Bucky, who was still smiling. And he said, well, next time we'll have to either make it smaller or out of a different material. And the next summer when he came back in 1949, that's exactly what they did. They, they built... Um, the first geodesic dome, or it was the second, but it was much smaller, stronger, and that one stood gotcha. uh, in, in 49. And so that was the beginning of that. 
another person to mention is a student that was there called his name was Ken Snelson. And Ken Snelson later became a very famous artist for what Fuller called tensegrity structures. But when when Fuller arrived the first time, Ken Snelson was the person who met him at his car. He was sent to bring the models in with him. And then in 49, when Fuller came back to teach the summer session, Snelson had built a, a sculpture that was two X's that were attached to each other by, by tension members, by wire, but they didn't touch. And it was, it, it's a very interesting shape. And he showed it to, to Bucky the first day that he was there and Fuller said, this is amazing. Can I have this? And Snelson <laughs> said, sure. And gave it to him because he had a couple of other ones that he had done. And, uh, Fuller immediately started applying it to the ideas that he was on, and he came up with the term tensegrity, tension mm -hmm. integrity, where it's compression members like a, a, a strut that are attached to other struts by, by cables or tension members, but they don't touch. Snelson went on to make a career out of those structures, but there was some, some initial uh, bad blood between them because he felt Fuller was taking credit for something that he had discovered. And he also felt that, that, you know, he was naming it. And he was like, and he, he immediately applied it to everything he was working on, including geodesic domes, but he did tetrahedrons. He did everything like rapidly. And Snelson was not, I, I was fortunate enough to actually have dinner with Snelson once. And so I asked him directly. Uh, he Unfortunately, he's passed away, but your listeners can look him up because his work is phenomenal. And you may have seen his sculptures because they're at, in cities all over the world. Um, Denver, Baltimore, is, they're all over the place. He's in New York City as a bunch. And they're in many museums. But I, I asked him and he said, the thing that... that um, he, he did feel a bit um, that he was not getting credit until in 19, I believe in the 1950s, MoMA did a show at MoMA where they took three things developed at Black Mountain College. There was the geodesic domes, then space framing, which I mentioned earlier, or what Bucky called octet trusses, and then a tensegrity mast that, that was based upon what Snelson first did. And at that show, Snelson got full credit for working for the story. And it was in the catalog and it was in there. And so that gave him a lot of credibility in the art world. And suddenly his career um, took off in a, in a new way because MoMA had, had um, given him th that credibility and actually set the, the record straight. And Fuller fully agreed to give him that credit. It was, it was not, Excellent. it was not like he was trying to steal it. Um, so th you'll, you'll see that there, if you, if you look into that, that there is some version of that story out there, but having spoke to Snelson himself, um, I can say that he did, he did feel it for a while, but after that, it, it, it helped him to get over it. So um, it was something that, awesome. that I always remembered. Bucky didn't seem like one that was really um, obsessed with with credit or well, I don't, maybe he, that's a my own projection. I, yeah, I mean, I think that he actually was very specific about um, things that he invented. One of the things that he would say is that he patented it so that it would show that 
he discovered it and also allow the individual to control that idea, at least temporarily, um, in a way that governments and, and corporations do all the time. But the individual has that ability. He wound up with 28 patents in all. Um, right. And he um, he did want to have credit for that and, and his ideas, I think. Um, but he, he wound up working with a lot of teams of students, mm-hmm. um, actually, one of the first domes that was built was he he did it with students at um, MIT while he was teaching there. But they assembled it. They built a restaurant. I mean, it was it was for a client, and it was it's it's still the oldest dome standing. Um, it's in Woods Hole on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um, and there's an effort. I was involved in an effort to save that dome and turn it into an art center. There's a development that's being built around it, but it's still there. Um, it ran in the 1960s as a as a restaurant, um, but it's in it's in need of renovation. And so, um, oh, I'm not sure where that process is at the moment, but um, it's the oldest standing dome. But in 1953, I believe Ford Motor Company um, commissioned the first big commercial application of a dome because it had a rotunda that that they wanted to be covered and the only thing that would constructionally stably do it were these these new geodesic domes so they put in a covering over this rotunda and that changed everything um sudden, mm. suddenly um he had a very um it was the lightest strong strongest structure and a clear span structure, the, the structure is in the shell like an egg and there's no need for columns. So you could span things. Um, the, the military was the second client after Ford Motor Company, the military stepped up and they started putting domes all over the place, particularly in the early warning radar domes, the, the, the dew line that radar facilities uh, are put across in, in, North America, up in Canada, too. They had a bunch of them because the Cold War was going on. And so they wanted to actually be able to um, defend, protect these radar installations. And the dome was the strongest thing. So they mm. utilized them for that. But they also utilized them for a structure that they could pick up with a helicopter and put down so they could immediately have a headquarter. Um, so the military became the second big client for him. Um, but that changed everything. And there the, he um, actually set about commercializing the dome um, through a number of different um, projects. But one of those commercializations were the playground domes that started popping up in the 1950s in, oh, right, in America. Right. They were and they were being sold all over um, the place. But he he went around teaching and working with students and making all sorts of new domes and new geometry and new math um, at that that time, calculating the geometry for domes was quite, quite complicated. Um, just to jump back to um, the icosahedron for a minute, I mentioned to you that most domes are based on an icosahedron. And basically, the, the 20 triangles of that dome, your viewers can think about um, Epcot Center in Disney World, because that's a, a, a full spherical dome um, based upon... Right. It, it is a geodesic dome. 
If you take the triangles of an icosahedron and break them down into smaller triangles of different sizes, that's what a geodesic dome does. So it becomes stronger as it gets larger because there are more and more structurally stable triangles. So actually, it's the only structure we know that gets stronger as it gets larger. And theoretically, there's no limit to size. Hmm. Um, so Fuller um, was a provoc provocateur and would like, he actually proposed doming a big chunk of Manhattan in order to save on energy. All of these separate buildings with their own heating systems to him was a complete waste. And they were essentially like a heat sink, losing all that heat. Whereas if you put a big dome that would be so far up, you would not be able to see it, but it would actually be able to warm um, that whole area just from the sun. You would not need any, it would be somewhat tropical. And there are a lot of large scale domes like that that are built now. Um, the Eden Project in England was one of the millennial projects that has a lot of different geodesic domes connected together where you get a feeling for that idea. Um, but his, his fortunes definitely shifted. And he, um, by the 1960s, took a position at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, which is um, where he was for the 1960s. And he, he traveled around the world giving talks. And he was urging people to think about the planet as a whole. And he came up with the term spaceship Earth. It was during the, the beginning of the space race, and he was made the point that we're all astronauts, and we're on a single spaceship, and we need to think about it um, as a whole, and that the idea of war and weaponry was obsolete, because now with the Cold War, all life on the planet through mutually assured destruction could end very quickly. Um, so we needed to think differently and move from weaponry to livingry. And he believed that through technology, humanity, there was an accelerating acceleration of technology and humanity was increasing the living standard of everybody on the planet. And for the first time by his, his predictions in the 1970s, there would be for the first time enough for everybody on the planet. Not only that, mm. but the technology was increasing the efficiencies where you could do more and more with less and less that for the first time in history, people could live at a much higher standard of living than ever before imagined or had by kings and queens of years past. And we were coming to that point in the 1970s. So he started what he, he, he urged, a, what he called a design science revolution and later expanded it to a comprehensive anticipatory design science revolution where you would use technology to to change the planet and everything. Um, he wrote a book um, later in 1970 called uh, Utopia or Oblivion, but there's a quote from it that I like very much. Um, it is, revolution by design and invention is the only revolution tolerable to all men, all societies, and all political systems anywhere. Every nation mm. welcomed the invention of the airplane and refrigeration. And if you think about it, I, I always say the Wright brothers and Alexander Graham Bell did more to change the planet than all politicians in the history of the planet combined. 
And that kind of technological uh, revolution is going on to this day um, with technology and accelerating at incredible rates right now, changing the planet in more profound ways than we will fully understand uh, in our time. I, I tried to yeah. imagine I tried to imagine it, but it's it's radical. I I, I agree a hundred percent. Actually, this is kind of a pet project I've been working on, but this idea of revolution by de- design and innovation is uh, boy. I think we're at a big cusp. I, I right totally twenty twenty one. I totally agree with you. And as a matter of fact, well, Bucky was always. I think he was a little bit ahead of his time with his with his predictions. But in the 1960s at, at SIU, Southern Illinois University, he started what he called the design science decade. And he challenged in 1960, he challenged at the International Union of Architects meeting, he challenged them to focus on making the world work for 100% of humanity, designs that would help everybody instead of at his calculations the 40 percent that it was helping at that time he then Mm. um in 1965 started what he called the design science decade to actually try to do that utilizing students and motivating students at the time to do that and so he became a very big force with the culture count the counterculture of the 1960s and by 1969 um, when the, the moon landing happened, this idea of Spaceship Earth, he actually published Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, which became a, a bestseller, um, his biggest selling book. And I, I recommend it to anybody even still to read that um, because you will see that even the, the chapter titles, he was way ahead of his time in his thinking. And that, that was the point. Um, the anticipatory is to think ahead, but you had to think comprehensively about the whole planet. Um, and he, he makes the point in the book that the thing about our planet is that it doesn't come with an operating manual. So we have to learn by trial and error, but some errors will end everything. And he would say, humanity, <laughs> humanity is not nature's only experiment. And if we mess up um, that, that book, Utopia or Oblivion, we're not nature's only experiment. And the amount of, of resources that were being spent on atomic weapons to destroy life on the planet at that time was the biggest and most important thing. I mean, we, we talk about climate change now, but in comparison to nuclear annihilation, where a single person could, could start this, it was a bigger, uh, more touchy situation. So, a big part of his focus, and I actually, I know you guys are uh, exploring the works of Robert Anton Wilson. Um, Fuller continued on with this idea, and he wrote um, one of his last books, Wilson recommends everybody read, called Critical Path, who charts out all of this stuff. Oh, you've got it. Great. Excellent. And it's... Uh, in the back, he has a history of human, it's the chrono- chronological inventory of prominent scientific, technological, economical, and uh, political world events for during his lifetime. And before that, he then has the chronology of scientific discovery and artifacts for humans. Um, and, he, and he lays out his vision of the history of the planet and the future in it. Um, and... 
interestingly enough, it's one of the last books that were published um, that he he wrote in his lifetime. Interestingly enough, um, Wilson interviewed Fuller in 1981 for High Times magazine. Yes. I don't know if you've read that interview, but he goes over a lot of this stuff. It's been and, he, a while. and he talks about very specifically, and Fuller says, we've got eight years. 1981, he's like, eight years or the planet is doomed. And he wasn't talking about, about climate change. He was very specifically, and, and Wilson actually asked him about the Russians. He was talking very specifically about the Cold War, I think. Uh, uh, though, though he doesn't, he does say it in some other books. He doesn't say it in that interview, but he's that that threat, that weaponry threat to life on the planet was dominating things. And we had to change that. Interestingly, eight years, the fall of the Soviet Union yeah. was or not even the fall. It was the actual peaceful transition of uh, from the Cold War in many ways that. I yeah. think I think he was pretty dead on. If if the Cold War had gone on much longer, who knows? Right. And and that anticipatorily, if we are thinking us versus them, this Malthusian strongest the survival of the fittest, a Darwinian Malthusian model of humanity, we're misguided. And and he goes into that with Wilson in that in that interview, um, which is is an interesting read particularly for anybody interested in both um a lot of the same themes are repeated through fuller again and again um just on on an, another thing some of the students that he worked with at siu then did what he called the world game which he pr was proposing right. to solve these problems and the first world game a workshop was done in new york city with a group of students um that included a number of people including edwin schlossberg who was who is Carolyn Kennedy's husband. He was a student that worked with Fuller at SIU. And they developed um, this concept of a game. He, he had proposed it for the Expo 67 Dome in Montreal to have a big computerized controlled game where all the people that are visiting can see how can, how can we solve the problem on the planet. The Johnson administration wasn't interested in that, and they, they glorified the space project inside of it, but they did take the dome. But Fuller then went on to develop it with the students, um, what he called the World Peace Game um, initially, and then it became the World Game, which taking its, its inspiration from wargaming that goes on in the military all the time, why don't we, instead of thinking how to destroy other people with armies, think about how to solve problems on the planet? And so the World Game Institute was formed out of that. And there was a whole effort and they, they um, went around doing workshops. And there's a revival of some of these um, ideas still. Um, but he saw it as using computers to actually come up with solutions to the problems. And he realized that computers doing it would be very invaluable to doing that. And Interesting. on that point, climate change that we are concerned about is based upon computer generated models of what will happen if we don't do this exactly what he was talking about and a lot of the people sometimes fuller is referred to as the leonardo of the 20th century i think marshall McLuhan called him that but he's also sometimes called the 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 grandfather or the godfather of green because also in 1968 the 
the whole earth catalog, which is um, sometimes called the, the internet for the hippies, was dedicated to Bucky. And the first pages are about whole system thinking and Fuller, if you look at the first one. Um, and that had a huge impact on people. Um, Steve Jobs is, is a prime example who was profoundly impacted by this, the, the whole Earth Catalog. Actually, Stuart Brand, who started the whole Earth Catalog, um, wrote to a lot of different people saying, and he, he made a button that says, why don't we see a whole image of the Earth? That was a button. Mm. And uh, Fuller was the only one who responded to him by letter saying, uh, yes, we should have one of those. And then later when they got it from Apollo 8, they got this image. He started to make that. And that's the image on the front of the whole Earth catalog. Oh. But oh, it's wow. it's dedicated to Fuller and that whole idea. And and domes um, became a lot of a lot of the cult counterculture and hippies started building dome communities and domes all over the place. So um he, it's, he started to go off into that realm. And because it was the Cold War and he was talking about helping everybody, um, actually his offices, he was interviewed by the FBI and his offices were searched by the CIA at SIU. Um, and in 1970, his fundings were, were cut there. But he moved to Philadelphia, to the University of Philadelphia, and he uh, moved the world game there um, after that, but it was because he had made contact with a known KGB operative when he was in Russia in 1959, doing a dome for an expo that the U.S. was showing off um, technology there, um, famous for the the kitchen debate between Nixon and Khrushchev in the GE kitchen that was installed in this geodesic dome. Also, um, Charles and Ray Eames did a seven screen display in the main part of that dome in Moscow in 59. So um, the U.S. was using the dome as a, an emblem of our technological advance um, mm. at that time. Another interesting point was the first domed stadium that was ever pitched was to, by Fuller for the Brooklyn Dodgers. They, they pitched putting a dome downtown in Brooklyn so that they wouldn't move. Um, but that didn't happen. And uh, actually, Robert Moses was opposed to it. And so it never, never came to fruition. And the, and the Dodgers moved. Um, but now, now domed stadiums are quite common. And there weren't any at that time. Right, right. It's interesting. I think uh, Bob Wilson was very fond of the world game and went on to uh, host a lot of that. And maybe also, I'm I'm rusty on the details, but he was very fond of it. Well, and he was he was very fond of Fuller because he was so revolutionary in his thinking, um, and and I think that um, he was not dogmatic at all because he he really believed that everything is changing and it's going to be replaced. Like you have yeah. to, you have to be designing uh, 50 years ahead that, and th this evolution is going to continue to happen. And, and as it is, because if you think about it now, the, the incredible amounts, I mean, I grew up doing video and, you know, I, I actually grew up with, with fortunately my father was teaching at a college and I first used the internet in the, early seventies on a teletype machine to play chess against a mainframe computer um, oh, wow. in Minneapolis, far away from my hometown with a handset and everything. So I've seen this incredible escalation, yes. but video, 
when I started doing video, and I did a lot of photography too, but particularly video production, you needed a hundred grand worth of gear to edit video, and you were doing it in an editing suite on tapes going back and forth. You know, the camera was huge, and that was at 640 by 480 resolution. If you think about it. Yeah. Now, and that's going to tape, magnetic tape. Now it's all on our phone. The average five-year-old can not only shoot 4K video, but distribute it to the whole planet instantaneously from your from a phone that everybody's carrying around. The impact of that, and not only that, you can look up anything you want. The impact of that, and it's connecting us. This, this single device of doing more with less is not fully mm. appreciated or understood by people yet. They, they overlook how much of an impact our technology is having. Fortunately, yeah. um, this idea of the design science decade from 65 to 70, I encourage the Buckminster Fuller Institute and I advise them strongly and they've done it, a new design science decade from 2020 to 2030 in unison with the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, which um, are to 2030. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, the SDGs. A little bit, yeah. There are yeah. about seven, 17 of them, I think. They were developed after the Millennial Development Goals. Um, the M Millennial Development Goals um, were from 20, 2000 to 2015. And now the Sustainable Development Goals are from 2015 to 2030. But making the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or damage to anyone is the goal of the world game. And if you look at the sustainable development goals of the UN, the first one is no poverty. Second one is to zero hunger and then good health and well-being to everybody and quality education. It sounds like making the world work. And all of the countries on the planet have signed on to these goals. So instead of it being communist propaganda or worrying about <laughs> that at that at, at like it was at Fuller's time, now we, I, I think, be due to the changes in the education system and thinking more globally. Um, climate change is a global issue, and everybody understands that now. It's, it's changed from his time. Our our understanding has advanced radically and it continues to accelerate i think that um we do have a chance to actually see this this um utopia that he that he envisioned and i i honestly believe in a hundred years a lot of what we think now will look so different um if you think back i mean a hundred years ago vitamin c was discovered in in 1913 um, so that's how radically things can change yeah. in a hundred years. I mean, if you think back, on oh, I think even less than I, that. I mean, I, I, I believe in my lifetime, um, it's possible that, that we can end hunger on the planet. I believe that's possible. Yeah. I, I, I believe by 2030, we have the technology. It's, it's political issues that are the problem and Fuller and Wilson go into that, but the idea of, he calls it 157 captains on the planet, all trying to go in different directions. Doesn't work. It's an obsolete concept and it will be replaced. Technology is the way it's going to be replaced. And as the internet has demonstrated time and again, it's happening. 
whether we like it or not, yeah. it is happening. No, I agree a hundred percent. I I think I don't want to be another one to put some optim overly optimistic projections out there, but I think we are right on the cusp of this change, and it's ten ten years from now we'll be talking about a different world. Well, and and the, the thing that Fuller always said is it's touch and go. You know, you we could wind up on the rocks at any moment. It, it's dangerous waters and the, the sailing. Yeah, but the the shift to livingry is the thing, and so. The Buckminster Fuller Institute um, had, a, a, for 10 years, it was called the Buckminster Fuller Challenge, which was, a, they would award $100,000 to a, a recipient each year. There was a, an elaborate um, process where they selected the, the top proposal, and there were a number of others that would get supported. Um, and that generated a lot of ideas that and and highlighted many projects um, around the planet that are doing it now um, the the Buckminster Fuller Institute is has a number of new initiatives that are um, advancing ideas they they have one called regenerosity which are supporting many programs around the world particularly in Africa and India um, to help people utilize technology particularly for basic needs uh, essentially at first um, like water harvesting um, through technology solving problems that people are facing every day clean water health hygiene and and hunger um, and it's you know I I look on it as somewhat of a shame of humanities that we haven't solved these problems yet but I have faith in the younger generations when you meet young people and talk to them they all realize, yeah, why haven't we done this yet? Why don't we do this now? And I think um, the technology will enable it. Um, whether we do or not, yeah. whether we do or not is the question, but um, Buggy would say it's it's individual initiative that does things. And the guinea pig B is everybody is their own special case example of the generalized principles of the universe. He, he felt he was trying to discover those generalized principles and use them for the good of everybody. And so that's these concepts and this, this idea of how nature builds and nature's coordinate system allow us to do more with less. And, and um, when I give the workshops, I, I, he, he in, in synergetics, which is his, his major work that the whole thing is online now um, is, pretty much the deep end of the geometry and a lot of the ideas. I recommend critical path or operating manual first, but if you want to dive into the deep end and if you're interested in the geometry as much as I am, um, he, he suggests that, that studying this is, is key to understanding nature's coordinate system and applying all of these things. Um, so it's, it's one of the things that really inspired me um and like as i mentioned like steve jobs if you look at the think different original think different ad of all the people that he's got in there gandhi and john lennon bucky's in there too and bucky's in there with with one of the models yeah um if you were to um try and like sum up like what's his lasting legacy what's his impact on the world today what did he well i i think this this whole earth consciousness that the that really was a change from that cold war mentality that the counterculture mm. embraced globally 
he was a figure of that and got kind of written off by the mainstream media um, as a fringe character. But he wasn't because he was actually having this huge impact. And now, because of uh, C60 and, and Buckminster Fullerene, his name is going to be remembered a very long time just due to that alone. Because it's yeah. 1.5 times stronger than Diamond. It's one of the most heavily researched um, materials in the world. And, and I work at, with scientists at the Nanotechnology Center here. And they have all had to learn this stuff now because they realize how, uh, how important it is. All the geometry. As a matter of fact, viruses, the, the structure of viruses is a casahedral. And the, the people who received the, the Nobel Prize for viral structures looked into geodesics and they were like, oh, there's a, there's a great... Um, the first BBC Horizon program was Buckminster Fuller, the works of Buck, Buckminster Fuller and um, Aaron Klug, who received the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the structure of viruses, is there with Bucky and they talk about viruses and the models. But COVID is icosahedral, the COVID viruses. And most, oh, wow. the capsid, the protein shell of a virus is icosahedral, most of them, not all, it's, but like 90%. I think is the is the amount that are icosahedral as well. So wow. th the lasting impact in science is always going to be there. But I think his message of making the world work for 100% of humanity is as powerful and as important as anything. Um, and I think he had that impact. Wilson, um, I think, saw that in him and that idea. And so many of the people that were inspired during that generation that have gone on to things. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I, the Vice Institute at Harvard is, uh, they call it biologically inspired engineering. The, the founder and director of that, and it's the most heavily endowed institute in Harvard's history, saw someone carrying a tensegrity model that they had made in an art class. And he was like, what is that? And he went over to it and he then went and begged to take the art class from the teachers and said, fine, come. And he learned about tensegrity from that model. He did his doctoral dissertation. He was a medical student, did a doctoral dissertation on the structure of cells being tensegrities, but he's gone on to apply that to so many other things, the whole human structure, bones and tendons are tensegrity structures. So mm. this understanding of how nature builds and applying those principles is key to that. Um, the, reason, the, the formula that I wanted to mention from synergetics that I often use in, in workshops when I teach about this um, is U equals MP is how he summarized it, whereas universe is equal to the physical P times the metaphysical and the metaphysical is beyond physical it's weightless it can't move a needle all concepts and ideas are metaphysical so a triangle is a metaphysical concept and as such it's eternal any physical representation of a triangle has a temporal life but the concept of a triangle is not only eternal it's beyond the word triangle that's being used to to describe it, because if you didn't speak English, what I'm saying now is all gibberish. So communication and language, Bucky called language the first industrial tool that humans have utilized 
in order to change things. And it's how we cooperate with each other. Um, and so um, I think all of those things over time, his work will be progressively um, discovered because he was so far ahead of his time. Um, I've found like just these primary structural systems does lead to a much deeper understanding of the planet. Um, and the project that I mentioned, the molecularium project, the representations of the atoms are all spherical. Um, another big um, revelation that Fuller had was it's all about the closest packing of spheres. And um, mm. actually this led me to the discovery of a toy based upon things, but the shapes are minimally described by the vertices. You don't, if you build the, the structures and you have the model of the shape, there is no face there at all. Ah, uh, right. It's and all... you don't need the edges. Actually, the minimal description of the shape is putting them together. If you just put the vertices together, if you have a unit radius sphere, four spheres will pack closest into a tetrahedron. You get three making a triangle, and then a fourth one gives a sphere. Oh, excuse me, a fourth one gives you a tetrahedron. Um, I was making models of those shapes when I discovered that they spin really well. Um, hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you looked it up. It's, it's, uh, I did. Uh, yeah, I want to see it in action. Let's, I got to put it in front of the camera, I guess. That's, can you recognize the shape I'm spinning there? It's uh, not a tetrahedron. It's two tetrahedrons. I forget what that's called. This one's actually the octahedron. It's octahedron. Octahedron. And if you if you see the two different, here's here's the octahedral model, yeah. because this one has six vertices. It is the octahedron. So gotcha. I wound up um, making models of the shapes. I saw acrylic spheres down in Chinatown in New York City one day, and I was like, "Oh, those will be perfect models." I went home, made a a series of them, just the vertices out of these these spheres, and I immediately found that they stack really well into towers. And I had them stacked on my desk for weeks before one day I accidentally knocked it over and one of them was spinning. And I looked at it and said, hmm. I started to spin the others and I realized this is a very good top. I've never seen anything like it. And in the end, I uh, did my research and found that no one had actually created a top that was made like that. Um, and I wound up getting a patent on any plurality of spheres used as a top. Yeah. Interestingly enough, they happen to be um, in the patent classification systems. It's amusement devices, and then a subclass of spinning and whirling. And under that, they have spinning tops. And in the description they have there, they say a single spindle. However, these don't have a single spindle. And they, they're the first spinning tops with more than one axis of spin. Um, the octahedron that I've got here are the XYZ axes, the three XYZ coordinate axes. Um, and that's based upon the, the axes of spin of this, this top. But the tetrahedron has four axes. The icosahedron has six. And that's just in gravity. So... I wound up getting a patent and licensing it off to 
uh, toy company, Duncan Yo-Yos. I don't know if you know Duncan Yo-Yo. Yeah, yeah, of I, course. I, I licensed it off to them, and uh, they had them for a while, but uh, they're currently not in production. I'm working on relaunching them next year um, in 2022, the relaunch of Tetratops, but there's a site still up, but um, the manufacturer is tricky, so I'm, I'm working on that, but um, they will um, be available again in 2022. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Is there a link we can include? We'll, yes. We'll circle back I, with I can, that. And, I, I can, and I will also include a link for the Molecularium Project because we made a digital planetarium dome show that all the characters are atoms. Oxy and Hydro and Hydra are the, the stars of the show, and it's aimed at, at younger kids. Then we did a 3D IMAX version that we upscaled it a bit. And then we have an online theme park called Nanospace with over 25 games and activities for kids, all free online. Um, RPI owns the project. We also have a molecule building game app that's called My Molecularium on uh, the Apple App Store that you can get for free oh, as well. Um, I'll I put all of those links. But I'm currently working with, with um, RPI on a new production Um not going to say exactly what it is, but it's more game-based learning um, and utilizing these devices that are all over the place because kids are learning from technology very well. Um, actually, he wrote a book um, in, while he was at SIU in 1963 that was based on the talk he gave called Education Automation, where he predicts the internet very specifically saying people will have a connection at their home with a two-way television set to large computers and be able to get information on any, the most up-to-date documentary information on anything they want. Um, wow. Very specifically. That's so as we're reviewing all these major influences on Robert Anton Wilson, we're finding, I'm finding so many of them were just so brilliant and so far ahead of their time. And they just were massively misunderstood. And another thing I think that um, my assumption is that what Wilson was really drawn into them because they really just uh, were hell bent on progressing evolution above their own personal ego. They were just uh, interested on in doing what they could to drive progress forward. And uh, yeah, I'm just appreciating, you know, as you were speaking, I thought this guy is a modern day Leonardo. And I don't know the history of the environmental movement, but certainly had a environmental focus long before most of the rest of us were uh, thinking in those terms. For sure. He actually hired a geologist to calculate the cost of a single gallon of petroleum, oh, wow. taking into account how, how much time it takes to make that petroleum from, from the dinosaurs on up. Oh, and, yeah. and a single gallon of petroleum was over a million dollars in like 1970 dollars. Um, and he, he had that calculation. They had the science and the math right there to show. And he, he strongly advocated that everything could be done by solar. We don't need nuclear. We don't need uh, petroleum for energy generation. Um, and he was advocating that very early on way gotcha. before most and that that's right. where i think his impact is continues to be felt um when you do talk to some of the elder scientists and people they all say you the scientists that i work with they're like oh yeah <laughs> like they they he yeah. he 
was outside of the establishment enough, yet the demonstration of the principles and the physical demonstration that these clear plan structures, they're like, well, he's right. <laughs> he can he can show it. And uh, one of my favorite expressions by Bucky was, is any philosophy to be effective must be mechanically applied. And that's uh, that's one of the things that he would held, hold himself to. He says mechanically, but I think he means physically. Like you have to be able to physically, to be effective, right. being able to physically apply it. And, and I think right. um, that's, that is the case when you start to understand these things, um, you think about everything differently. Right. Well, it's one thing to have these ideas in our head and think we've got something, but then you have to put it into the lab of real life and you find out, you know, oh, this will really work or this will not work. And exactly. Yeah, and, you, have to, and, you have to apply it. And during his lifetime, he did come off as a bit like out there, futuristic think thinker. But now with the discovery of C60 and this, the whole nanotech revolution took off due to that discovery. Right, right. That impact in the science world, he's he's now has a lot of credibility with viruses as well. They they completely understand. And he still, you know, his personality was was outside of their academic structures. But as he would point out, overspecialization leads to extinction. And he feels mm. that our educational system forces them into a place where they don't think comprehensively enough. And so we need to move back from that. And the big movement in academia is out of silo and transdisciplinary. Um, yeah. But he's he was really pushing for that earlier on. And I think Smalley was a chemist. Uh, Croto was a was a physicist. So that, you know, that discovery came between their as Fuller would say, the universe doesn't have departments, only academic yeah. institutions. It's the same, ah. the same principles apply. It's that interdisciplinary approach. And he had this big picture thinking, out of the box, systemic and thinking. Whole systems too. That that whole system, whole yeah. system thinking. And that 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 is a profound effect. And it's it's much more common now than it was then. And it will only grow, I I believe. Um, most kids are are being given this concept from an early age, but even you know, as as humanity advances, hey, as you would say, it's it's got to be all of us or none of us, and and I think right. that I think that that he'll be remembered for that in the future too. That's a big one. Yeah, it's huge. Another thing I've noticed is uh, there's a lot of talk in the innovation entrepreneurship spaces about uh, thinking in first principles. They're yep. really going back to that kind of Aristotelian idea of Aristotelian idea of first principles. And when I hear that a lot, sometimes I think these guys are just given that lip service. But when, when I hear, when I read about Bucky Fuller, I'm like, oh, no, this dude went down to first principles. He yeah, was, well, and, and as he would call them, they are generalized principles of universe. We uh, are we are all special case examples of those those generalized principles. And. He, he continually made the point of the individual and it's, it's takes individual initiative and everybody is in the same position in how they view the universe. And Beautiful. so understanding this will help you to understand nature's 
coordinate system and how nature builds. Mm. And so that's a it's I, that for me is very profound because it really did help to enlighten that. And then the scientific approach to the universe um, has allowed humanity to change radically. Um, but he would point out that your life is 100% unique. Though it's these generalized principles, gravity affects us all, how and what you do with your time is up to you. Um, right. He's famous for, for wearing out teams and speaking for a long time. The story that I'm told when he was at RPI, he at midnight, they, they said they had to close the building. So he, took, he went with a bunch of students and continued talking at, at this, I, I believe it was a frat house that, that that they continued on until four in the morning where then they went out for breakfast. So he's, he's renowned for going on and on, which I I'm in the same line as him. <laughs> I think one of, uh, one of the things you uh, circling back, you also that I wanted to highlight is just uh, he seemed to be studying nature and seeing how nature did things and applying that to his own problem solving as well. And I just really appreciate yes. There's probably a term term. For well, that, but, biomimicry uh, has, has biomimicry. become big, um, but bio is life. And um, I have a friend who considers Fuller's he, uh, he, Dave McConville was the chairman of the board of the Buckminster Institute for a while, but he calls it, cosmomimicry, the cosmic cycles and, mm -hmm. and um, looking at everything, not just life, because the structure of diamonds, as well as the, this, these carbon atoms, not just carbon atoms as life, but carbon atoms as different things. And that's at the heart of the movies and the molecularium project in the script. I came in as a writer and producer. And I think getting kids to be thinking about that from a very young age will change how they think about everything. And so mm. when you start talking about CO2 or H2O, they will think of it more informed and with the science literacy that will help them to understand um, once they get that our planet better and and understand how humanity has evolved through our understanding to help people more. Um, it's often Beautiful. it's it's often you hear the messaging that goes out these days that it's never been worse. Now is the worst time ever. And I think that's a misunderstanding of history, because during World War Two, it was much worse. It's it was much, much worse. They were digging up metal on one side of the planet to drop it and kill people on the other. That still goes on, but to a lesser extent. Um they, the weaponry is advancing at such a rate that it's, they're working on, on less and less uh, damage due to those weapons. Um, I, I still think that war is 100% obsolete and that um, it will only takes individuals and everything can change in less than a generation. If nobody joined armies, then there wouldn't be them. Um, or if armies were being utilized to solve the problems on the planet instead of um, create more through through destruction, um, I, I think that it would change things faster. I like to say that um, destruction is limited. You can't go below. <laughs> you can only destroy so much. There's a, there's a limit, whereas creativity is unlimited. And it, mm. it, it's what makes it go around. 
there will always be physical decay and change. Um, but our understanding that we carry on and pass on is what really changes um, how people live on the planet. And it's happening. Beautiful. It's happening rapidly. And we are at the golden age of humanity right now. We live in it. Think about what you've got. I mean, I remember like this, not saying this is the answer to everything, but the tools that it allows us to do. And it's it's profoundly changing our planet at a rate that we that most people are not clocking yet. I agree 100 percent. I think part of the doom and gloom we hear is just things are changing so rapidly that that people aren't able to to keep up with it and enlighten it and with that going on they get scared so i think that's a great place to to start wrapping up here is there anything you you want to well, say in I, summary i i also just want to um get get a little uh Shout out for an event that's coming up sponsored by oh, the, the Buckminster Fuller Institute, as well as a lot of other organizations, because one of those SDG goals is partnerships and the BFI is reaching out and trying to have more impact by um, involving other organizations in a cooperative way. Um, and they're having an event. Um, they have a design science studio that um, they are they have different, they're on their second cohort of, of over a hundred artists that are working together. I guess um, they're saying more than 200 artists are involved with this event and they're calling it the regenerescence because regenerative um, systems and, and regenerative design is, is really um, something that's helping to, to change different systems on the planet. And it's how nature works, the ecological um consciousness of returning to the way that nature does things. So they're, they're calling it uh, the Regenaissance. And there's an event that they're doing during the Art Week in Miami. They're doing it both in Miami and online, showing work of artists inspired by Fuller's work to try to get this message out to people. Um, and it's coming up on November 30th and December 1st. Um, there is a, a virtual version and so you can actually attend online if you if you wish. Um, and the BFI has been running what they call a trim tab space camp, um, which is uh, an ongoing course. They do five week long courses um, on different topics. Trim tab is a term that Bucky used to describe himself, which um, came from a nautical term on a big ship like an ocean liner it has a big rudder but turning that rudder just with a wheel is very difficult so on the back of that rudder um, there's a small rudder called a trim tab they also have this on rudders of airplanes as well and by turning that right. that small tab you will then be able to turn the big rudder and then that rudder changes the course of this big ship and he used this metaphor to describe himself it's actually um, the on his his epitaph is call me trim tab it's it's on ah. on his on his grave um that the individual can actually do through one small action change the course of of all of history and the planet itself and he called upon us to all be trim tabs and 
encouraged people like he would often be asked when he'd give these talks that were enthralling and audiences would listen for many hours as he would go on. What is it that we should do next? What's the next step? And his answer was invariably, look around you and figure out what needs to be done and do it. Mm. And so that, that actually he's often attributed with the think globally and act locally. Um, I, I found it once in his think global, act local. And I, oh, wow. I, I think that um, that is, it is really a big part of his legacy and impact. Ah, what a perfect way to end. I, I encourage people to check out the BFI's website at bfi.org. I'll, I'll send the link for that as well to find out more information about him and to become involved. They're ongoing. Um, the design science decade is just starting up, um, but I do believe that um, that individuals and technology can really change the planet. And um, I'm optimistic that that we can conquer some of these big plaguing, as they called the wicked problems that have have plagued the planet for a long time. Um, of course, it'll present us with new challenges, but I have I have a big faith in humanity and our ability to understand things and then apply that understanding to change them. Yeah. Yeah. And I look forward to new challenges. Uh, I look forward to being done with these old ones. So <laughs> exactly. we, can, we can enjoy some new ones. But, uh, uh, yes. Thank you for that. That was, that uh, was a beautiful summary. Um, do you want to, is there more about the Buckminster Fuller Institute that we should know um, about? Or? Well, they, like I said, um, actually there are a couple of other initiatives, the, the regenerosity I, I'll, I'll put links um, so that anybody who's interested can, can f- find out more. Um, Perfect. But it's, it, everything's always in transition and the, the BFI, I, I've been a member since the, the mid nineties and it's changed over time. And um, the goal is to, to actually accelerate this design science revolution, a comprehensive design science revolution so that everybody can live at a higher standard than ever before. And I believe that that, that is, that's a possibility. Whether it will happen or not will be dependent on on individuals. So hopefully, I I, I like to um, go and and teach ideas that help people think, see things differently, so that they then change how they they act. Perfect, Kurt Prisbilla. Thank you for your time. Oh, it's been an thank absolute you. pleasure. I, it's my pleasure indeed. And and uh, I, I can be reached for anybody at Kurt at tetratops.com for anybody okay. who wants to reach out to me. Um, that should be my email for the rest of my physical time on the planet. Um, the other thing, the other quote that I love from Fuller is, um, we're called to be architects of the future not its victims. And mm. I, uh, I strongly believe that everybody, just like Bucky, is the average human being but can do phenomenal things. And uh, I strongly encourage you to get out there and look what needs to be done and do it. Ah, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
that concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Kurt Prisbilla for taking the time to talk with us. You can find Kurt at molecularium.com or tetratops.com. Thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press. And thank you to our producer, Ryan Reeves, for putting it all together. Our next episode on James Joyce releases on the 23rd of April. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e Hilaritas. consists of non-simultaneously apprehended events. Non-simultaneously. Uh, uh.